Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we've been studying God's redemptive plan for us, which is purely gracious. And uh, we've seen in this plan that he provides for us a substitute who takes the burden of our sin and at the same time who lives a righteous life in our place. He's our substitutionary righteousness as well as our substitutionary sacrifice. And there's a dual exchange. Our sin goes to him, his righteousness goes to us. And we've seen that once we put our faith in Christ, this is promised to us, it's guaranteed. And so the question arises, well, shall we not just keep sinning then and enjoy more grace? And uh, Paul explains, no, as we've seen in chapter six, you shall not do that because not only did that exchange take place, in which your sin goes on to him and his righteousness clothes you. But you were also given new life. The life that's in Christ now has become your life. Your heart has been changed. And so therefore your desires and ambitions have been changed by virtue of regeneration or what we call the new birth. So justification by faith in Christ, the atonement happens, but at the same time, regeneration happens. So both are true. And then we've seen, as regenerate people, how we are to live holy lives. And Romans 7 shows us the futility of trying to live a moral life the way that we used to try to live a moral life, which is to read the rule book and try to keep the rule book. That in Christ, there's a, there's a new dynamic. It's a, it's a God dynamic. And that is that God takes up residence in the soul of man and lives his life through our lives so that we not only have an alien righteousness, but now also an alien power by the Holy Spirit. And we saw at the beginning of Romans 8 that we can give thanks to God because he has solved this problem of frustration and futility in knowing the right things and wanting to do the right things, but being completely unable to do them by simply trusting in the power of God and looking to the Spirit instead of looking to our own moral strength, even as believers. And then Paul in Romans 8 continues this discussion about the life in the Spirit. And last week, Dick Cain led us in this understanding of the Spirit adopting us and making us sons of the living God. We're His sons. He looks at us and cherishes us the way a a doting father looks upon his own son. That's the privilege that we've been given by the Holy Spirit. We've been given an entirely new status. No longer are we slaves in the kingdom. Uh, we are sons. And then at the very end of the section from last week, we read this, these verses. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then this implication, verse 17, and if children than heirs. So if you have children and you have an estate, no matter how small, if you're wise, you go to your lawyer and you get uh, your uh, last will and testimony so that you can hand something down to your children. There's some inheritance. Whatever the remains are, you want them to go to your children. I hope you also want them to go to the mission of Jesus Christ. And you ought to adopt the mission of Jesus Christ as one of your children, by the way. Now, if you have a large estate, you want to give more to the kingdom than you do to your children. If you have a modest estate, just add your children, just add the kingdom to your children. If you're a second Presbyterian, you can easily do that by just uh, making the foundation, the second Presbyterian church missional foundation, one of your children. Uh, but having said that, generally speaking, we're thinking about our children as our heirs. Uh, they're the ones who receive our blessing. Now, what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit makes us sons to such a degree that now we're the heirs of God. Wow. What's God's estate like? Well, <laughs> tonight when all the lights are out, look up in the sky <laughs> and look at the universe he has made, the little teeny, teeny part of it you can see and realize that is his estate and you have become an heir of his estate. It's an amazing thing. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, there's a provision here. 
<coughs> this provision is that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what you see in verse 17 is an important principle that the glory of our inheritance that he stored up for us is inextricably connected with something called sufferings in this life. In fact, sufferings with Jesus. They're sufferings that come as a result of our being in Jesus. And these are inescapable. And not only are they inescapable, but when God gives them to us, we receive them as a blessing from him. You know how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So Paul actually says, for the sake of being in Christ and enjoying his fellowship and becoming like him, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And Paul is saying here to us that if you would be a believer who receives the inheritance of God, you will be a believer who welcomes sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings with Jesus Christ. So no complaining and moaning uh, about uh, the scorn that you receive from the world because of opinions you hold or practices that, that you exercise like evangelism or tithing or other things that the world considers outrageous. No more moaning and complaining about that because this, these are the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And these are the very insignia of our belonging to him and the guarantee that we've been made one with him and have become his heirs. So suffering and glory are inextricably tied together. You see it in Romans. Of course, probably the place where you see it most dramatically is in 1 Peter. And Peter repeats glory and suffering over and over again through those five chapters in 1 Peter. Once again, making the same point. That we're called to suffer, says Peter. We're called to glory, says Peter. Our calling involves both. They're inextricably connected. Now we'll see how they play together and why we have such confidence and why we have such joy and why there's such triumph in the heart of a Christian when we read now what Paul says about it. Once again, he's showing us the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit quickens us, gives us new life, gives us new birth, empowers us to live a holy life, gives us a new status as sons, and sets before us a sure and certain hope and then, of course, we find by the time we get to the end of the Rome, of Romans, the Spirit does it in such a way that it's absolutely unbreakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, he says at the end of Romans 8. But now in the verses we're going to study, we're going to see what the Spirit has actually done for us. What does this future glory look like? Well, let's take a look at it now in verses 8 through 25. And you notice now we're slowing down. When you slow down and amen and you take fewer verses, that means you're into some deep stuff. <laughs> okay, here we go. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
okay, the first thing the Apostle Paul is saying to us that the Spirit makes clear to us, Roman numeral number one, the future glory surpasses the present sufferings. The future glory surpasses the present sufferings. Yes, suffering and glory are inextricably connected. You cannot have glory without the sufferings. However, the sufferings are not to be compared with the glory. Now, you remember how Paul puts it uh, later in his second letter to the Corinthians. Actually, as we've seen, that's his, his fourth letter, but it's called 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he says, these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Light and momentary. Now, if you've lost a child, <coughs> which is probably one of the, the things we least want to have happen to us in this life, the last thing you ever thought about that being was light and momentary. If you've traveled the world and gone to some of the poorest places in the world, you would say, this doesn't feel like light and momentary afflictions to me. This looks like a total disaster. And certainly we feel that way in this life. But what we have to remember is that eternity is a long time. <laughs> in the light of which everything in this life is but a moment. It is momentary. And the word glory in Hebrew is kavoth, and it just means weight. And in fact, uh, some of the translations in 2 Corinthians are the weight of glory. It's actually redundant because glory itself means weight. And glory is very heavy. And what Paul is saying is that things in this life by comparison are light. And we have to train ourselves to think this way because that's reality. We live in this little scope of time. And yet Paul is saying you've got to stretch it out and stretch it up and realize that in light of that, our afflictions are light and momentary. Now, what's interesting here is that this is at the very heart of so much of what the apostle is teaching us. It's about the future. We can sing a, an old song like I'll Fly Away and, you know, we can almost hear the guitars in the background and it just is a lot of fun to sing an old traditional hymn like that. It seems so quaint. Uh, it seems so old. It seems old-fashioned to some. But you realize when you look at the Bible that Christ and the apostles are teaching young men to think eternally and to think about the future, the future glory. <clears throat> Those of you who are with us at Second, you know that we're in the Upper Room Discourse uh, in, on Sunday mornings. And if you look at chapter 14, the Upper Room Discourse is a private conversation with God, with Christ and his 12 and then mostly with his 11, so his closest disciples. What's he going to talk about? Well, the Upper Room Discourse ends up being a great manual for discipleship. But one of the first things he talks about is in chapter 14, the very beginning, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, you trust in God, trust also in me. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's talking to men who are about 30 these are young men who have a missionary career ahead of them. And he's saying to these young men, you've got to realize that the place I'm preparing for you has to be in your mind all the time. You have to know where you're going in order to live in this life the way you ought to live. And Paul's doing the same thing here. You can't live the Christian life without a robust vision of the glory that is coming. That's where you get your courage. That's where you get your joy. It's a transcendent joy. It's a profound courage because it, it transcends the circumstances that are in front of you. And the reason is reality transcends the circumstances that are in front of you. So we take this very seriously. This is the heart of the Christian faith. You'll find the same sort of thing in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul shows how you live the Christian life. And what's the beginning of Colossians chapter 3? He says, set your mind on things that are above, not things on the earth. Seek the things that are above, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you, you're seeking, you're ambitious toward, you are going after something in the next life. And that's what makes a Christian so distinctive here. He's, he's got a citizenship in another place. 
He has an ambition to be somewhere else. His heart is longing for the other city. He's constantly on pilgrimage there. And everything that he's doing here is a journey that takes him to the next city. And without that understanding, you can't possibly exegete a Christian. You can't understand him. You can't interpret him. He doesn't make sense to you. He's otherworldly. So Paul is showing us here how we've got to take hold of the, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and live out the Christian life. It starts in your mind, in your heart. The, as we say over and over again, the Christian faith is a contemplative faith. We're contemplating these eternal verities that go way beyond what the worldling can possibly imagine. So here, the apostle is saying, our future glory surpasses our present sufferings, even though suffering and glory are inextricably connected. Now, also, we will notice as we get into this text that suffering is not only inextricably connected to glory, but suffering actually contributes to our glory. Once again, think about the text <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart, for we fix our eyes not on things that are seen, but things that are unseen. These light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us. These light and momentary afflictions, these sufferings are achieving for us and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So the sufferings actually are achieving. They're producing something in us that prepares us for the place to which we're going. Jesus went ahead of us to prepare a place for his people. The Holy Spirit is here preparing a people for that place. And that preparation comes often through the afflictions of Jesus Christ. So do not despise your afflictions. They're extremely important. And you must take your mind and press it into heaven and get an eternal framework. And from that perspective, begin to reflect upon the meaning of whatever your afflictions are. What is the Lord doing in you to prepare you for this place? So don't lose heart when you're being tried even if they're the afflictions that have nothing to do directly with your Christian testimony. Those afflictions are important. But then especially when you're suffering for the sake of Christ, those afflictions are enormously significant. Now, look secondly at verses 19 through 22, and you'll see something amazing about the glory that's revealed to Christians, and that is that the creation itself is waiting for this glory. Now, in various places in the Bible, you, you get instances of creation being personified. For example, in Psalm 98, the psalmist says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And in Isaiah, the trees of the hills will clap their hands. It's as though the whole creation is personified and animated in looking for the new creation that's coming. The creation itself is waiting. Now, how is the creation waiting in verse 19? First of all, the creation is waiting eagerly. Now, why do I say this? Well, look at the verse itself, verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing. This word eager longing could be translated on tiptoe. You know what it's like to be on tiptoe? Have you ever been at the airport waiting for someone? You haven't seen them in months, maybe years, and you're looking over the heads of everyone, just leaning forward. Uh, I knew what that was like when my son uh, came home from uh, uh, a Marine tour in Afghanistan. It had been in a very dangerous uh, engagement there. And when he was coming home, and his, his group uh, had been flown in uh, to the coast of Carolina, and they were forming up, and they were marching into where all the families were waiting. And you can believe I was on tiptoe. I was looking to see which, which one is he? Where is he? Is he there? Is he okay? And what Paul is saying is the whole creation is that way. It's on tiptoe and leaning forward. It's very eager to see the glory coming. 
and the trees of the field are, are blowing in the wind, just waiting to see what God is going to do. And what are they eager to see? Well, look at verse 19. They're eager to see who the sons of God are. Well, I was eager to see my son, but the creation is eager to see the sons of God. Who are they? What must these people be? Where will they come from? What will they look like? The creation is mystified by this and longing to see. You see, what Paul is saying is that this Christian salvation is not some myth that one of the great religions of the world has created. This is not something that's going to happen over in a corner of the cosmos. No, this is going to be grand central station. This is going to be center stage. This is going to be the whole thing, the entire cosmos is waiting to see who the sons of God in Jesus Christ are. That's what Paul is saying. Get a grip on this. This is the meaning of the entire cosmos. All the planets, all the galaxies, all the billions of galaxies are waiting to see who are the sons of God. Amen. What a great salvation. So he's saying, of course, the creation is eager. And then he says in verses 20 and 21, the creation is waiting hopefully. Hopefully. Now, why does he say that? Well, first of all, he makes it clear that the creation was subjected to futility. It's hopeful because it's in now. It's in subjection to futility. Now you say, that's not real encouraging. Well, it is if you understand where things are going. And that's the reason that Paul teaches on these matters over and over again. Now, we can look at the futility into which creation has been subjected. You, you can see it today. Last year was the warmest year since we've been keeping records. The second warmest year was the year before that. That's called a trend. You know, I've got a problem. Politics, really, I'm just amazed at politics, aren't you? I'm surprised we're still here. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. And I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be here, at least in, the, in, the, in any way that we'd recognize. But the Democrats, you Democrats, you, you kill babies. You Republicans, you're killing the whole dang planet. It's unbelievable. You know, we, we pick what we want to we wanna emphasize, and we criticize the other party for not taking care of this out of the other. And I'm looking at both of you and going, it's a mess. And you can see this planet's warming up. I mean, I'm driving into Amen this morning. It's January the 21st, and there's lightning and thunder. And it's going to snow three inches tomorrow. You go figure all this. I don't know. It's getting very confusing out there. But you see global warming. We can see the deforestation that's been taking place in my generation. These huge forests. In South America, they've just been taken out by square mile after square mile. And the carbon that's in, in the air, the polluted waters, the nuclear uh, contamination that we've had. There are certain parts of Ukraine that if you go in them, uh, you can see through yourself in the mirror that night. Uh, we, we look at, at the creation. There are all kinds of problems. And furthermore, now that we know more about the, the uh, asteroids and so on. We're wondering if we're going to get hit by one of those. That may be a good way to go, as a matter of fact. Get it all over at one fell swoop. But the creation clearly shows that this subjection to futility, we're killing off species one at a time, one, about one a day, a whole species of animals. It's unbelievable what we're doing to this planet. And let me just say, for those of us who believe in a new world, and I do, and those of us who believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, and those who believe this whole thing is going to burn up anyway, that's no excuse for poor planetary management. It's not. And we were given the duty to be stewards. You just look in Genesis 2. We're supposed to be toiling on the ground and taking care of God's planet. And we're doing a lousy job of it, and it seems to me that Christians need to be on the front edge of this whole issue. That's another thing. Well, no, I've already said it. That's fine. You heard my sermon. But it's, it's in subjection to futility. Now, there are a lot of people, in fact, probably the most common argument against Christian theism goes something like this. Well, you say that God is good, perfectly good, and all-powerful. I got a question. If we have the evil and the suffering that we have on this planet right now, 
your God is either not good or he's not all powerful. That's one of the most common arguments against Christian theism. How can you say that the God of the Bible exists when you look around and see what's going on? There's a major deletion from the equation. That's the problem with the complainant. He's deleting the fact that he's a terrible, horrible, rotten, no good sinner. And so is everybody else. The problem is not the lack of goodness in God. The problem is the lack of goodness in you, you idiot. And that's the reason that we've all been subjected to futility is because we deserve it. All right, you with me now? That's called theology. All right. And what you do is you go back to Genesis 3 and you see how God himself subjected this creation to futility. It didn't just happen by natural cause and effect. It happened because God cursed it. Because the vice regents on the planet, Adam and Eve, our mom and dad, they decided to do things their way instead of doing things explicitly the way God had commanded it. And he told them that they shall surely die. And he graciously provided a way of salvation. But he also exercised his holy judgments on them. They died and you're going to die because of it. And this planet is subjected to futility because of it. That's the problem. And it is precisely because our God is good including his holiness and his justice. And it's precisely because he is powerful that this planet is subjected to futility because of us, Adam and Eve. Now, that's the bad news. But look what he says. In hope, and then verse 21. Hope of what? Hope of freedom. The creation is waiting eagerly and hopefully because it has been promised freedom. Listen, the creation being personified, is listening in to everything God is saying to his favored sons. The creation is listening in to the promises of the Bible. The creation is aware that certain things have been said about the future that is coming. And the creation has a hope of being set free from its bondage to corruption and decay. As the hymn writer says, change and decay in all around I see. And that's all that we see. The creation is red in tooth and claw. Change and decay everywhere. But the creation itself is eagerly, hopefully waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ because they know, the creation itself knows, it shall be set free from this bondage to decay. And the creation itself, we are told in verse 21, <coughs> will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Leave your finger in Romans 8, but you've got to turn with me for just a second at least to Isaiah chapter 66. And here in Isaiah, I'm sorry, 65, you, you begin to see that 800 years before Jesus Christ, this promise of a new world had been given to all of humanity. Verse 17, this is on page 1359 in your study Bible. Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days or the young man <clears throat> shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. <clears throat> they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, Isaiah 
was conveying to the people who were going to be in captivity that when they get into captivity, please remember this promise, that the Lord is going to return you to Jerusalem. And in their minds, Isaiah is just using very flowery, flowery language about creation itself to describe what it's going to be like to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. But what Isaiah might not even have understood is that God's going to do exactly that. He's going to bring a new creation. In 2 Peter, we're told that the elements of this creation will dissolve in fire. And God will bring a brand new creation that does not decay and that is not in bondage to the deteriorating effects of human sin. This creation will be set free from all of that and there will be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, we're told, in, Jer in Revelation chapter 21. So, see, your future is tied up to the future of the cosmos. Your question is not, well, will God remember me? Will he take care of little me? As an individual, will I be before the Lord? No, look, you're tied in with this cosmic promise that God has given to his people. So the creation is waiting eagerly and hopefully as it is in subjection to futility, but in hope of freedom. But notice in verse 22, the creation is also waiting groaningly. Now, if you wonder if that's a real word, I looked it up. It's a real word. Groaningly as an adverb actually exists. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, this is very interesting. Paul uses the analogy of childbirth. Now, single men, I assume that you've not witnessed firsthand childbirth. If you have, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Don't let that scare you off from marriage. You really old men, you may not have seen it either because I think it was about my generation that started to go into the labor room and the delivery room. But I learned with my first child, I have five children, by the way, and I've witnessed the pains of childbirth five times up close and personal. The first time, I think I may have told you this before, I made a major mistake. I was on my way to work when the whole thing started to happen, and I was dressed in coat and tie. And I went to the labor room with my tie on. That is a mistake. When the woman is in the pains of childbirth, she grabs your tie. <laughs> Why did you do this to me? And that sort of thing. So I learned, don't ever wear a tie in the labor room. And in the labor room, some interesting things are said, most of which you should forget. She doesn't really mean it. She's in the pains of childbirth. And yet, when all is said and done, some hours later, and she has this beautiful human being, so tiny, on her breast, the glow in this woman's face is absolutely amazing. If you want to know when your wife will look her most beautiful, it's not on the wedding day. It's right after the baby has been born. Her face is just alive. And yours too. And I have to say that when our first child was born, uh, I took a look at that child and realized this is something that no human being can ever come up with. This is something that evolution could not produce. This is a miracle. And I shortly became a Christian after that. There were other things that led me to Christ, but that opened the door to my heart right there and then. In the, in the delivery room. And so <clears throat> here's what Paul is saying. The creation is groaning. And don't take it too seriously. Don't listen to it too closely. What do you expect when they're groaning in childbirth? The creation's in pain. 
Don't take that as the sign of the things to come because at the end of these groanings of childbirth, you have a child. And what is the child in this case but an entirely new creation? You see, once again, even in the creation, the afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The existing creation <clears throat> is on its tiptoes, longing to see the revelation of who these sons of God are, knowing that when they're revealed, the entire creation will be released from its pains of childbirth and be ushered into a new day. The whole creation is waiting eagerly. Now, Paul goes on in verses 23 through 25 then to make his main point, and that is that we are waiting too. And that our waiting is parallel to the creation's waiting. That our waiting for glory is for a cosmic glory, not just a little thing over in the corner of the universe, but a cosmic glory that God is preparing for us. He says, we are waiting, first of all, verse 23, groaningly, there you have it, just like the creation. He says, we, uh, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. You know, now I have to say, as I'm getting older, I groan all the time. I groan when I get out of my chair. I groan when I get out of my car. And now I'm groaning even when I get in it. And I've been listening to myself lately, and I realize I'm just groaning all day long, just groaning. And young men, I'm sorry. I don't hate to tell you these things. I used to tell people who were a decade or more ahead of me, I don't want to hear about it. I'll just find out when I get there. I'm just going to give you a little hint, though. You're going to be groaning. And it's just, it's almost a sacrament of the groaning that we're doing now. Yes, we groan all the time. Well, we're groaning in travail. Why? Because we've been subjected to futility. And we're groaning because, look, number one, we're baptized in the Spirit. We've been given the gift of the Spirit. This is where the groaning, the spiritual groaning comes from. It's because we live in this body, which is falling apart, and we have resonant sin in our flesh. We've studied that. But now we've been given the eternal gift of the Spirit in our hearts. And there's a tension there that creates a groaning. So of course you're going to groan in travail until you too are delivered from the decay, the bondage to decay of your own body and spirit. So we've been baptized by the Spirit. You can look at some of those texts and see how great this gift is. But secondly, look at this. Paul says we're actually living in two eons. That is, <clears throat> we're groaning inwardly. It's a secret groaning. There's a groaning with us that's more than just getting old or having pains in this life. The groaning that the Christian has is because he now lives in two eons, two ages. He lives in this age. He's making a living. He's rearing his children. He's making friends. He's doing the things that help him to survive and help him to contribute to society here in, in this world. He lives here. He's got citizenship in one of the nations of this world. And yet at the same time, he's got citizenship elsewhere. And this world doesn't, doesn't see that. That's a secret. It's inwardly. He's groaning inwardly. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. He says, our outer nature is wasting away but our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That causes a groaning. There's a separation. Our bodies are winding down. Our flesh is evil, but we've been regenerated. We have the spirit in us and we're getting younger all the time in that sense. We're being renewed day by day. There's this, there's this tension. It causes a groaning. And uh, Paul says, just like the creation is groaning, we groan too. Because as John Stott says in his commentary, if you read it, we're half saved. If you say, have, I, have you been saved? Well, you can say half. You know, people won't understand what you mean. You better explain that. But when you explain it, you can say, I've been justified. I've been regenerated. But I long for my glory. And until I have glory, I've not been fully saved. So Stott says we've been half saved. I think that's a good way of putting it. Now, notice also, parallel to the creation, we are waiting not only groaningly, but we're waiting eagerly. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. 
And you say, well, I thought you were already adopted as sons. What are you waiting for? Paul just said in Romans 8, 16, you have the spirit of sonship. You've already been adopted. Yes, indeed you have. Your status is sons, but your body has not been adopted. Your body is going to the grave. And so you're looking for full adoption, full privileges, because human beings are spirits and souls and bodies. We want to be redeemed completely. And here's what we're longing for, full redemption. Not just the redemption of our spirits, but the redemption of our bodies. And until that's done, we're not full, fully saved. We're not, we, our salvation has not been complete. And Paul says, we long for that. And gentlemen, that's the reason that we want to be heavenly minded. Now, let me just say, when we die, if we die before Jesus comes back, we will be separated from our bodies. And we will go into the presence of the Lord. And the reason I say that is that Paul himself said in Philippians chapter 1 that it's better to depart this life and be with Christ. So we are with Christ when we die, but without our bodies. Paul says similar things in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a little bit more complex there. But the idea is we, when we leave this life, we go into the presence of the Lord, and it is better than this life. So we look forward even to death because it takes the presence of the Lord. But we're still longing for the redemption of our bodies. And we will join the angels and all the host of heaven in crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, until you come back and glorify yourself and all your saints? So we'll join the chorus of the saints pleading with Christ to come back. And the reason he doesn't come back is that he hasn't saved all the people yet that he wants to save. But we want him to come back. And when he does, he will display his glory. He will vindicate all of us. And he will raise our bodies from the grave. You say, what about someone who's been dead 3,000 years? They're just dust. And the dust has been scattered everywhere. There is no more body. You wait and see. Uh, he'll reconstitute that body. Uh, and it'll be no problem. You were talking about God. And if he wants to give you a resurrected body, he will give you one. And it'll be a whole lot better than the one you got now. I assure you of that. So he is, we are waiting groaningly. We are waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Uh, John says, uh, we do not yet know. Uh, let me get it right. First John chapter 3, uh, verse 2. He says, uh, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is because we'll be like him. And we have to be clothed in his glory in order to survive in the presence of his glory. And we shall be like him. That's the reason C.S. Lewis says, when glory comes, you'll be tempted to bow down before each other because you'll be like Christ. And as we see in Revelation, sometimes the angel has to direct the saints and say, don't bow down before me, worship God. Everything will be so glorious, including you. So we long for that eagerly. Now, notice verses 24 and 25. And here we get to the, really the practical implications of this entire section. And that is that we wait hopefully. He says, for in this hope, we were saved. We are saved in hope. So if you have been half saved, if you have been justified, and if you have been born again, you are born again, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, into a living hope of the resurrection. That's the idea, the notion, the eon into which you are brought by virtue of salvation. It is an eon of hope. You can taste the future. You've been given what the Bible calls a down payment, an earnest on your glory with the Holy Spirit. What it means to have God, the Holy Spirit living in you, is that you have the earnest, the down payment of your salvation. You can taste it and you've been introduced into that living hope. So we were saved in this hope. Now Paul goes on to say, this is not something you can see. 
Why does he say this? Because we always want to see stuff. Seeing is believing, we say. Show me, says the person from Missouri. And we say, I can't. All I can do is show you the word of God. All I can do is tell you about my experience. All I can do is tell you what the living God has said to us and we believe him with all of our hearts. And we look like the village idiot because we're claiming something in the future that is so glorious, it trumps everything going on here. And that's the reason Karl Marx said that the dominant wealthy people always want the poor people to have religion so that it'll keep them under control. And that's what he said, it's the opiate of the people. It's the drug that you give people to keep them in line. Tell them there's another world. Don't worry about this world. Well, it's only the opiate of the people if it's not true. If it's true, it's the glory of the people. And for us, rich or poor, it's the glory of the sons of God. Paul says that we wait, hopefully, without seeing. He says, if you can see it, it ain't hope. Hope is what you can't see. And Paul makes this clear about faith. The very nature of faith is to believe what you can't see. It comes to you by virtue of promise and by testimony of Christ and the apostles. And you believe it and you stake your life on it. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's living a life based on invisible promises that we believe because of the testimony of God himself. And then Paul goes on to say, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, I've mentioned here Jeremiah 29. You'll remember the story there. Jeremiah 29, the people of Israel have been taken into captivity into Babylon. And it's a miserable existence. You'll remember that when the Babylonians came, they, have, they weren't probably the most vicious people in the ancient Near East, probably the Assyrians were. But the Babylonians came and they took the eyes out of some of the kings. They ripped children out of the wombs of some women. They destroyed the city. Not one stone was left upon another. They were pretty brutal. And then they took what was left into captivity. So these were the captives who lost their relatives, some of their children, and who, most importantly, lost the glory of living in Jerusalem where the temple of God was. And they're in Babylon. Some false prophets came to them in Jeremiah's day and said, don't you all worry about it. God's going to take you right back to Jerusalem. It was kind of the health and wealth version of the Old Testament gospel. And Jeremiah said, don't listen to those people. They don't have a word from God. He said, here's the word from God. 70 years. 70 years. Which means most of you who are listening to me are going to be gone. I'm talking about your children. So 70 years from now, you will reestablish the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, that's exactly what happened. 586, they go into captivity. 516, the temple is reconstructed. So just as God had promised. But Jeremiah is saying you must be patient and you must wait. And that famous verse that so many of us love is in that context. I have plans for you, he says. Now the plans are for you to wait 70 years. And then the plans are I'm going to bless you. And he's telling them that because it's not going to feel like blessing for 70 years. And they have to believe the invisible. How in the world is this wicked Babylonian ruler going to allow them to go back in 70 years? Boy, that'll be the day. And furthermore, the Babylonians ransacked the temple, took all of the gold and brought it into Babylon for themselves and used it for their gods. How's that ever going to happen? Well, you should trust God. Because by the time 70 years is up, the Persians have defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus the Persian believed that people should be able to worship their own God. And so Cyrus sent them back with all their furniture for the temple. Yeah. They say there's no God. And when God makes a promise, you trust him even in the midst of what appears to be impossible because he's the God and the governor of all the states, all the nations, all of history, everything about it. And he's making this promise to you. 
that at the end of this age, Jesus Christ, who's prepared a place for you, he's coming back to get you, to take you where he is so that he can live with you forever. That's the promise. It looks impossible. It looks more impossible than the promise given to the Jews in exile in Babylon. It looks more impossible than that. It's going to require a miracle. So when does that ever stop God? And we're the people who believe. And if we believe and have hope, we wait patiently. That doesn't mean that we put up and condone evil all on the way. It doesn't mean that we want the planet to dissolve. It doesn't mean that we kill babies. It doesn't mean that we allow evil to go on. No, we're continually seeking to be salt and light in the planet. Always. We're in the world, but not of it. But we also are waiting patiently for perfection to come. And we're promised that it's going to come. And it's this living hope that inspires us to deal with our cussed old selves and to continue to work on sanctification and to engage the issues of this broken world without losing hope. And we continue on by the power of the Holy Spirit who has not only filled us and empowered us now, but set before us this vision of glory that far outweighs any suffering that God's people will ever endure. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of our hope, the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ, in which time the new heavens and the new earth will be revealed to us. And most importantly, the sons of God will be revealed even to the creation. Who are these people? And we thank you that you've numbered so many of us among them and that you've given us the faith to wait for you. And we pray that you'll help each one of us today just by simple faith in Jesus Christ to trust you and to be numbered among those who will be gloriously transformed, given bodies like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enable us to live in this generation for you, living between the ages, living in the tension, groaning in travail as in childbirth, but knowing that the child is coming, that the glory is on its way, and that all of our sufferings are achieving for us this eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.